be with you for worship this morning, and especially to be with my dear friend Amy and to see that all the gifts she brings to ministry is now in partnership with such terrific colleagues and such a gifted congregation. It really seems like a match made in heaven. The text this morning is from Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. By faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in a land that had been promised as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city which has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. And for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land that they had left behind, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, God has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. Trading spaces, fixer-upper, love-it-or-list-it, flip-or-flop, masters of flip, flipping out, flip that house, flip this house, escape to the country, beachfront bargain hunt, Design on a dime, tiny house nation, extreme homes, sweat equity, and of course, the very Brady renovation. Even more than British baking shows, what's the deal of all the TV shows about homes? You know, the Bible has a very particular way of speaking of home, but their vision, the biblical vision, has to swim upstream against such a strong current in our carefully curated cultural vision of home. Like the Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. And the frame cross-stitch home sweet home wall displays that were ubiquitous, at least in my grandmother's generation. And the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. But I think you and I can both acknowledge that there are some cracks in this carefully curated vision of home. Most of us do not possess ruby slippers to click to get us back to Kansas after tornadoes and munchkins. Dreams in that song speak of an unfulfilled longing for a home that we never quite get to experience. If you or I need home to be sentimental, nostalgic, a never-changing place of stability, the Bible isn't much help. While we can apply many ideas and sentiments to the word home, the biblical witness has many ideas about what home is not and a very specific vision of what home is. 
When the writer of Hebrews names the source of life-giving vision, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the writer is thinking of the home that God creates. Faith as a home is not a concept that love it or list it will ever be able to recognize. Faith as a home for Hebrews carries us into the deepest places in our lives in joy, but also in hardship. It describes a faith that keeps us looking up and looking out, even at times when we want to go into a clinch. It's faith about what we are journeying toward, not what we've left behind. This faith is rooted in the assurance that we do not create or maintain the home in which we live. That is accomplished by the word and by the presence of God. This faith moves us toward a way of living where we have to leave behind the life we have known to receive the world that God has created and offered to us. And so the words that the Bible uses to describe home include strangers, foreigners, travelers, refugees, aliens, wanderers, seekers. For the writer of Hebrews, home is a place of trust and dislocation and dependence. Trust, dislocation, dependence are intertwined when the Bible turns its gaze toward home. You and I, though, I think, however, often want a home of stability and predictability and nurture and tradition and careful composure. But even with that, looks can be deceiving. In his book, The Culture of Disbelief, Stephen Carter describes how when he speaks to civic groups, he often does it on the topic, the most dangerous children in America. He tells two stories of home life. The first is about a terrifying day when he and his then five-year-old daughter were caught in the crossfire of a gun battle of rival gangs on the streets of Queens. They were momentarily separated in the shooting, and he could not get to her until after the shooting had stopped. It was the most terrifying five minutes of his life. When Carter tells this story, his audience generally gasps in horror and in sympathy. Then, Carter tells about the day he was commuting on the train from his home in Stamford, Connecticut, to New Haven, where he was teaching at Yale. As the train made its various stops along the way, many teenagers got on board, headed for the private schools that dot the train's route. At one stop, a group of girls got on, and Carter happened to overhear their conversation. They were heatedly debating which community was more fashionable and exclusive, Westport or Fairfield. One of the girls from Westport named a person of great wealth who lived in her town, only to be countered by a Fairfield girl who named an even wealthier person who lived in her town. The argument raged back and forth until one of the Westport girls came up with an announcement she saw as a trump card. She named a world-famous entertainer who she claimed actually lived in Westport. 
Not true, said one of the Fairfield girls. The entertainer did not live in Westport, <coughs> but was only visiting a friend there. She knew this in fact, she said, because she had met this entertainer in her father's store. Hearing this, the Westport girl raised up and hooted disdainfully. Your father has a store? The Fairfield girl, realizing too late her faux pas, cringed in shame as the Westport girl drove the blade home. What does he sell there? Hardware? Harder than ask the audience, which of the two groups of children are more dangerous? The Queen's gang members or the Connecticut private school girls? Predictably, like us, I most say the gang members. Then Carter points out that the gang members, violent as they are, are closed in by their home neighborhood, and tragically, most of them will be dead or in jail before long. The girls on the train, on the other hand, are attending the best schools in the land, will attend the finest universities, will go on to important careers, and from those positions will make decisions that impact a great many people. In the long run, the world they see from their version of home, the values they assume, the choices they make, may well be more lethal than the gang's bullets. The Bible has a very different valuation of home. It's not necessarily about safety and striving. It's always about stretching and seeking. It's never about sentimentality or nostalgia. Finding home, according to Hebrews, is about trust and dislocation and dependence. To say then as now that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, is certainly for you and I to know dislocation. And if this faith leads us to depend utterly on God, we don't come to that without pain and hardship and sometimes an intense feeling of being a stranger in this world. In 1987, the Irish rock band U2 released their album, The Joshua Tree. Lead singer Bono talked about his experience as a child growing up in this very divided country, referencing the first song on Joshua Tree, Where the Streets Have No Name. He says, I was trying to sketch a location. Maybe, maybe it was a spiritual location. I often have the feeling of wanting to go somewhere where the values of our society don't hold you down. In Belfast, by what street someone lives on, where they call home, you can tell not only their religion, but how much money they're making, literally by which side of the road they live on. That said something to me, Bono says, and so I started writing about a place of grace where the streets don't have names. I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. I want to feel the sunlight on my face and see the dust cloud disappear without a trace. I want to take shelter from the poison rain where the streets have no name. Where the streets have no name and when I go there, I go there with you. It's all I can do. 
I'll show you a place high on the desert plain where the streets have no name. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This is a very courageous way of living for us. This will test us. This will dislocate us. This will drive us deeper into dependence on God. This courage, this, these tests, this dislocation, this deep, deep dependence, God says, this, this is our home. We are called to follow, even like Sarah and Abraham, when we don't know the destination. The invitation is not to some symbolic place of warm hearth and picket fences, but to a journey of loving, risking, tender trust. We are called to seek a homeland whose architect and builder is God, even when we don't have a map, let alone a blueprint. And we're invited to obey this before we understand it. And we are called to act in a love and hope we can only imagine before we can fully comprehend that faith in the living God will guide us to the city of God's design. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It means we trust the one who's sending us into the world. It means that we will feel profound dislocation at times as we live this faith. In the middle of our journeys, we will discover that all we can do is depend on God to see us home. Because according to Hebrews, the destination of our journey of faith, hallelujah, is never in doubt. Some of the most beautiful music ever composed was played on a cold January night in 1941 in an unheated barracks of Stalag 8, a German death camp. It was composed by a prisoner in that camp. His name was Oliver Messian. He was a devout Christian. He wanted to compose some music that would say even in the death camp, that the forces of oppression and evil do not keep followers of Jesus from living deeply. He was tired of the shallowness of the hup, two, three, four beat of the Nazi jackboot. So he composed a quartet for the end of time based on the word of the angel in the book of Revelation. All fragmented and broken and hopeless and shallow time has been gathered into the time of God. How do you compose music like that? The meters and the rhythms of this piece of work are irregular. The musicians, none of them can play in splendid isolation or with some soaring solo. They must play as an ensemble. In fact, right on the score where most composers would have written, play, play slowly or play rapidly, Messiaen wrote to his musicians, play tenderly. Play with ecstasy. Play with love. And it was played in the middle of a death camp that no one would ever want to call a home. 
by the grace and presence of God, even dislocated places have a taste of the tender home God provides. My father was a preacher who believed it was important to memorize verses of the Bible. Craig Barnes, president of Princeton Seminary, has written recently. On Mondays, my father would give my older brother and me a verse written out, and we were expected to recite it from memory by dinner on Friday, when he would point to one of us and say, Romans 8.28. And if we did not immediately start chirping away, for all things work together for good, for those who love God, we'd have to leave the table without dinner. By the time I was a teenager, Barnes said, I'd memorized a lot of the Bible. I never paid attention to the words, but they were still in there somewhere. When I was not quite 17, he says, my parents' marriage fell apart. My mother moved to live with her sister in Dallas. My father left the church he had started and just disappeared. My big brother dropped out of college, got a construction job, and helped me finish high school. Together we got by. Oddly, my brother and I did not talk about how our world had crumbled. Mostly that was because we couldn't afford emotion. We were too worried about the next meal and a place to stay. The following Christmas, he says, my brother and I decided we would go to Dallas to visit my mother. We didn't have any money for a plane or a bus ticket, so we did what young people sometimes do when they're not thinking clearly. We decided to hitchhike from Long Island to Dallas. By the end of the first day, we were somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia on Interstate 81. It was snowing hard, the sun was long gone, and we stood on an entrance ramp with our thumbs out on a road that was all but closed. After months, of hustling to make our life work, my brother and, and I in that moment were finally faced to talk to each other. We took a stab at describing our situation, but it didn't go very well after I mentioned that we were basically disposable to the people who were supposed to love us. We tried to pass the time by quizzing each other on sports statistics, but neither of us knew any sports statistics, so that didn't go very well either. And then in the middle of the night, my brother pointed to me and said, Romans 8.28. We spent much of the rest of that night asking each other to recite verses of the Bible that we had memorized but never truly heard. At one point, he says, I found myself saying the precious lines from Isaiah 43, but do not fear for I have redeemed you. And I've called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. By the time I finished, Barnes says, I was crying. That night, a passage about the sustaining love of God casting out fear became the turning point in my life. When you find God at the bottom, it is possible to enjoy life's highs and lows, without fearing that you'll ever fall beneath the love of the Savior. No one can be fully alive without getting rid of that fear. The writer of Hebrews names for us 
life-giving vision. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the home God creates. When you are at the bottom, or when it's just a stark fact that yours are my carefully curated vision of a sentimental, stable home is shattered, it is precisely then that you will feel the presence of God. And in that presence, you will experience a tender, loving home you could never imagine, let alone build on your own. And in this home, its foundations can withstand anything and withstand everything life throws at you. For nothing less than God Almighty is the architect and the builder and the foundation itself. And God is the very one standing at the open door, arms outstretched, saying to you, welcome home. 